I had heard about a, a Stax record there done by Rufus Thomas and Carla Thomas, father and daughter, called Because I Love You. We had a record distributor in Memphis who called me in New York and said, you ought to take a listen to this. So I went down there. I was introduced to Jim Stewart and Stax Records, and we agreed to make a P&D production and distribution arrangement with them. And that was our first record. And it was a regional hit, but it didn't do all that much. It didn't justify our coming down and taking it over and trying. And, but we had an agreement with them about future product. So about a year later, after Because I Love You, sometime during that period, a record came out called Gee Whiz by Carla Thomas, and it made instant noise. And so I went down to Memphis and arranged again to take that over. And then we had a big national hit with that. And then we continued. Stax was on a roll. Uh, later on, Otis Redding came in, Sam and Dave. And when I went to Stax, I saw the way these four guys came to work in the morning and hung up their coats and took out their instruments and started to play music. They may not have had an arrangement or a song. They may have had, they may have had a, a series of chord changes or a two-bar phrase, but they would start playing this into shape, and the next thing you know, here's a rhythm pattern. Next thing you know, they put a singer on. This was done without written formal arrangements. It was done by a group effort among the musicians, the producer in the booth, perhaps, the engineer, the artist, and the records were made inductively rather than deductively because they were built up just from some notes on paper. Uh, all the musicians had to go by was a layout in terms of the chords. And the chords, were, instead of the usual, instead of using chord symbols, we used numbers. They used numbers, one to six or one to seven. And this was very handy because if you ever had to transpose, it was very simple. There it was. You didn't have to have a man go around with a pencil making erasures on 12 or 20 music charts. And this spontaneous way of recording was very attractive to me. Also, they had a way of stacking their instruments that was different from the uh, normal way of putting the trumpet on top. Very often, they'd put the trumpet in the middle and have a saxophone on top. They also had what I would call a vertical arrangement like that with sax, trumpet, trombone, playing against the rhythm. And it would seem to be very sparse that way. However, maybe this is too technical. No, no, please. Because the playing was immaculately in tune, there were, in, there, there were two general ways of being out of tune that people <laughs> avail themselves of. One is being out of tune with their own instrument, whether it's a saxophone, uh, or most, most frequently a guitar, because 
One of the curses of rock and roll that rock and roll had to overcome was that the guitar was always the main instrument, and the minute you started to play it, you were pulling it out of tune. <laughs> Nowadays, the guitar stars have 20 guitars that are all tuned, they have a guitar tuner ready to hand them the next guitar after five minutes of a, a number. Uh, but these players, this rhythm section, a book of tea on the keyboard, Duck Dunn on the bass, Steve, uh, Steve Cropper uh, on the guitar, and Al Jackson on drums were just fantastic. Now, they, would, they would each be free to just throw in ideas all the time? Oh, sure. Anybody could have ideas, but this was not a jam session. The ideas had to bear a relationship to the song that they had in mind, or the chord changes, or the lick. And it's also interesting that this was an interracial rhythm section, because Al Jackson and Booker T were black, and Steve and Duck were white. Unfortunately, Al Jackson died in mysterious circumstances. He was murdered, and they never found out who. But he was such a brilliant drummer. So they were just absolutely fantastic. They played in perfect tune. They swung like a dog. And they had great soul. Steve Cropper is one of the landmark musicians of our time because he had had and has the gift of playing rhythm and lead at the same time. Now, it's very hard to explain. Before Steve Cropper came along, and also Cornell Dupree, who was from Fort Worth, but he came to New York and played with King Curtis and the Kingpins, he also had that gift. Until they made the scene, we had the burden of using at least two and sometimes three guitar players to carry lead, rhythm, and counterpoint. It became our job make sure they kept out of each other's way and out of the way of the rest of the instruments and out of the way of the singer while at the same time making a contribu contribution. And after several years of this, when I would go into a session, I would go in with a sick heart and a very depressed spirit. I said, what am I going to do with these three guitars today? Along comes the Steve Cropper and the Cornell Dupree. And he'd play a bar and a half of single string, go into a chord, and then make a chop. And the next time you put it all together, it's seamless. It's rhythm and lead. And Steve Cropper very rarely took solos. That didn't interest him. He was interested in doing this thing. I don't know if this is going to come across what I'm trying to describe, because people have to hear it sure. to understand what I'm talking about. But again, this was magic. It was mesmerizing. So this is a long-winded way of leading up to what I did with Wilson Pickett. I called Jim Stewart, the owner and the head honcho at Stax Records, and said, how about I bring Wilson Pickett down here and uh, use your guys and try to make a record? He said, fine. So I brought Pickett down and Jim Stewart and Steve met us at the airport, and uh, we took Wilson and Steve 
to the hotel where uh, Wilson was going to stay for that week. And we left them alone with a bottle of Jim Beam. And uh, next morning, they had written about four or five songs, including Midnight Hour, 99 and a Half Won't Do, 6345789. And I, I, I don't remember how many. And we went to the studio and we knocked off the first thing we did was Midnight Hour. I worked with Jim in the control room. I have to tell you a story that sounds self-serving. <laughs> because Steve Cropper has talk, talked about this a, a million times. It's, and uh, Jan Wenner wrote about it in Rolling Stone. And While we were working out the rhythm track for, rhythm, for Midnight Hour, I came down into the, uh, I came out of control into the studio I said, I have an idea. I mean, you guys are swinging. There's no problem with it. It's a great track. But I have an idea for a little different emphasis. I said, let's lay back on two and four. There was a dance going on at that time called The Jerk. And there was a slight pullback. And if you listen to Midnight Hour real carefully, you'll see that two and four seem to have a slight delay to them. And this really puts it into a fantastic pocket. And from that time on, Steve and Duck, I'll tell you to this day, that became sort of the imprimatur of the Stax rhythm section. And I must say, when uh, the, the British uh, movie and record people made that very interesting movie called The Commitments, they didn't quite get it right. Uh, they were close, but I've always wondered why they might not have asked me for a little bit of help. But it's okay; it's a landmark thing, and uh, very, you know, very interesting. When, when you uh, you were talking earlier about the horns, now when you did the horns in Memphis, with I assume uh, that's Wayne Jackson and well, Wayne Jackson and Andrew Love. Right now, now would they write out their own parts? Uh, who would actually write their part? They would. Who was the main guy of them? It all depended. When Otis Redding came along, he and Steve Cropper had probably more to do with the horn arrangers than they did. But uh, Andrew and Wayne did write a lot of parts. And in recent years, they've been working as a team and have been overdubbing the rest of the horn parts. But back in the day, we had full horn sections. We had, uh, anyhow, we had like, there'd be two more extra trumpet players beside Wayne. Uh, there'd be three saxophones and so on. There'd be a baritone, an alto, uh, as well as a tenor and so on. When there were multiple sections and just not Andrew and Wayne, somebody obviously had to write the parts, but very often, they'd be in the studio while the rhythm track was going down, and they'd be off in the corner listening and working out the arrangement. And that's how Midnight Hour was done. It wasn't a question of making the track and then overdubbing. First of all, it was mono. So <laughs> it was all done in one piece. So. There's a certain procession 
sequencing. First, the rhythm section gets the chords, and it's on paper. And the chords go dang, ding, ding, dong, dong, dang. Well, that's not a song. The thing that makes it a rhythm pattern, makes it a song, is what happens in between the ding, dong, ding, the spaces in the notes, and the pickup notes. And usually one of the players, could be the guitarist, will come up with a little figure, a one or a two bar figure, where the structure is these notes, these chords, but there are little in-between, walk-ups, walk-down, pick-up notes, syncopated notes, and so on. And suddenly, instead of ding-dong, you get so that's the genesis, that, that, that starts. After you get that, you put the singer into the mix, but not until you've got that basic thing and you make a beginning track with the singer, at which time this rhythm pattern is then altered to accommodate the singer. Meanwhile, the horns are off in another part of the hall. The horns are working out the horn arrangement, and at some point in this development, you put it all together and you have your record. So and what was then, then, it's the obligation of the people in the booth to get it mixed correctly because there's no remixing, there's no multiple tracks. So between the engineer and the producer, it's up to them to get it right on the fly. And of course, during so many of our years, we had the benefit of having Tom Dowd, who was the boy genius engineer and later became a great producer in his own right. Can you contrast the way that the Memphis guys worked with the way you then went on to famously work with the Muscle Shoals guys? Yes, well, there, there's be, people have asked me, how would you characterize the difference between Muscle Shoals and that Memphis Stax group, or later on what they would call the American group with Chips Moman? Ain't no difference. <laughs> it's all the same. It's just... A, it has this southern imprint, and they're the thing different about it. Sometimes a songwriter like Dan Penn might be in the studio, might come up with a suggestion or a lick. But again, I spent many more years in Muscle Shows than I did in Memphis, because uh, after that first Wilson Pickett, week, which yielded about six hits. It was incredible. I never went back there. I went on to Muscle Shoals. <clears throat> what I thought I'd do is give you a, a sample session at Muscle Shoals, how it... That would be fantastic. How it came to work it down there. That would be great. Okay. Oh, do you know about the Fat Possum label? No. It's getting a lot of prominence now. It's a northern Mississippi label, and it's a very special old-time kind of blues. But Don Covey went down there, and he made a hit record down there. The arrangement between Atlantic and Stax, it uh, fell back into strictly production.
and uh, distribution arrangement. Uh, let me say that uh, some of the warmth had gone out of the relationship, and uh, we found out that it behooved us to go down the road a piece, uh, 125 miles south from Memphis to uh, Muscle Shoals, Alabama. And we worked the same way there. I worked there in the 60s, the 70s, the 80s, and the 90s, although most of it was done in the late 60s and the middle 70s. There were few in the 80s, and I think in the 90s just one. Yet. But it was really jam-packed in those years, let's say from 63 or 64 to 76 or 77, tons and tons. I would come down prepared and I was always in hopes that the singer would be prepared to, would really know the songs and know them cold. I would come down on a Friday. I would meet with whoever it was going to be, the, well, let's call him the arranger, because although there were no written arrangements, what we did, we had to make a layout. The layout is the total song as it appears on the record. Let's say there'd be a two-bar introduction, and let's say for kicks that was a 32-bar song, so we do the intro, 32 bars, then we might have an instrumental interlude of eight bars, and then back to the last eighth of the song, and then a fade, and you fade out on two chords to the end, and so on. All that has to be arranged, in a sense. Again, I have to keep using the word arranged, but this is not a formal arrangement. This is the layout. And let's say, I would be working with Barry Beckett, who was my keyboard man, and he was the guy in charge out in the room while I would be in the uh, control room getting the tape started and so on. We would get the key. He'd sit at the piano, and if it was Aretha Franklin or Wilson Pickett or Solomon Burke or whoever it was, we'd get the key, we'd get the layout. That would all be done on a Friday. Monday morning, we'd start at one o'clock. It's all, you know, there used to be a myth in uh, the record business that became especially uh, prominent, a prominent myth in rock and roll that you could really get into it starting at 12 at night. And, and nighttime was the right time. And, and maybe that was so for a prototypical group, group on heavy drugs. But working with singers and sidemen, because most of my work, all through the years, I worked mostly with a, a singer and selected backing players. I worked with a few R&B groups like the Drifters, but I very rarely worked with 
a self-contained rock and roll group. I would say the one I remember best was Sanford and Townsend, Smoke from a Distant Fire, which was the first record that Barry Beckett co-produced with me. So the work would be done with a man in charge in the studio, and I'd be in the control room. And Monday, the musicians would get this layout, and it was just a series of numbers on a piece of paper. You use Xerox as many as you needed, maybe six or seven or eight. Uh, there'd be sometimes one or two keyboards. There'd, there might be an acoustic piano and a Fender Rhodes or a Wurlitzer <clears throat> or an organ and an acoustic piano. Uh, guitar, bass, drums, and maybe a percussion man would be playing anything from a triangle to a, a gourd, a scrapers, whatever, tambourines. And we would work this system of playing these chords and then getting the interstices, the in-betweens, and then bringing in the singer and then laying down the rhythm track. When we had multi-tracking, which we got early on, when we put an A-track in the Muscle Show studio, we would overdub the horns later, very rarely do everything live. Although uh, Aretha Franklin's first record, I Never Loved a Man, that was done live, and it was done on three-track at Rick Hall's studio. And again, it started there was a song she brought in, had been written by a Detroit songwriter. And again, we got the layout. Aretha was at the acoustic piano. Spooner Oldham was at the Fender. I don't know if it's a Fender or a Wurlitzer, probably a Wurlitzer. And we would start the rhythm going. Aretha didn't sing. She knew the drill. This was our first record together, was the Muscle Shoals. But she understood what we were trying to do. I said before that usually somebody would come up with a lick or a phrase, and Spooner Oldham was the hero of that session, because he came up with the lick that became the basis of that. That sounds like nothing, you know? But when you orchestrate this and a whole band is playing it, you suddenly realize that it has meaning, it's got a lilt, it's got a kick to it. And this is what kick-started the whole record, Aretha and the rhythm section. And we're running it down and running it down. Charlie Chalmers came up to me and said, listen, we got the horn parts. I said, no, you don't. And he had them. So that the whole thing was done live. I never loved the man. Was he generally the, the horn arranger that you'd use when you were at Muscle Shoals? No. Uh, the, the horn arranger was a, a guy named Harrison that did most of the uh, on a trumpet player. I'm trying to think of his first name. Uh, but it, you, you can look it up you know, it, in the books. Uh, although a lot of the horn arranging was ad lib. But as you said with, with Charlie. Now, for example, uh, Barry Beckett would come up with some licks, and I, I would interfere with some misbegotten notions of my own. 
and we would put it together with the musicians. So Barry and I actually ad-libbed quite a few hornwicks. And what about strings? Who would, who would well, well, we'll get to the strings okay. later. The main thing is that people who know a little bit about this, as Alexander Pope said, little knowledge is a dangerous thing. Drink deep of the Pierian Spring or not at all. Because people get the notion that, well, oh, these guys get together, they've got no paper. It's a jam session, you're jamming, right? No, sweetheart, we ain't jamming. This is a very organized method of creating organically and inductively rather than deductively. I'll tell you about one more session, a muscle show session, and I think maybe that's going to, I'll tell you about the strings. Strings were never done in the, the Muscle Show studio that I can recall. They'd either be done in Nashville or New York, or sometimes in Miami. We had an arranger named Lewis in Miami. Later on, we had Arif Mardin, who became the major string arranger. And invariably, he'd do that in New York, bring the whole tape up there, and so on. Now, obviously, we couldn't do that when we had only had mono. So there were no strings on the mono records. Simple as that. Uh, one of the most interesting sessions that we did at Muscle Shoals was Bob Dylan. Uh, when Bob Dylan called me and said he'd uh, like me to come down, he'd like me to produce his next record. Well, you know, this was like, yes, sir, boss. Well, uh, where do I jump? How high and when? Because to be called on by Bob Dylan, I never expected it. So we began, Barry and I did that, co-produced it together. And uh, we went out to Santa Monica where Bob was living. We went to a rehearsal studio. We start running these songs. And it soon becomes apparent that we're on gospel time. It's Jesus, wall to wall. That's fine with me. Bob Dylan, you want to sing about the Lord? You want to do the yellow pages from the phone book? <laughs> Whatever. So, again, working with Barry and Bob, same pattern. Got the layouts. Of course, we did all this in Santa Monica. Got the keys. Come to Muscle Shoals. And the first day, it was like, it was apocalyptic, it was so bad. We just couldn't seem to get in sync. One of the reasons being, I probably was suffering from severe Dylan intimidation because organizing the rhythm charts, organizing the rhythm, the rhythm material, it wasn't going the way I would have preferred it because Bob was playing on every take you know, usually you know, play guitar and singing on every take. And uh, I said, well, I see I, I have to make an adjustment here. We got one song. We had rented a house for Bob to stay at and the band, uh, well, not the band. His, uh, he had his background singers, a gospel group with him.
and we had to cook, fix the meals and so on. And we went back to the house, we had something to eat, and we played a mix down of the one song that we had done. And it was like obsequy time, it's all over. I say, wonderful. Bob Dill hires me to hatch a disaster. So the next day, we come in and I sat down with Bob. I said, let's try this. So what we did, you just couldn't take Bob and sequester him. We got everybody together in the middle of the floor and started play, they were playing together. They could hear each other, they could see each other. Of course, this would be no good for the record because there'd be nothing but monumental leakage. So here's what we worked out. We take a song, play it, work out the rhythm track, Bob playing but not singing. They would play this into shape and it really would get good. I had the engineer record this on a quarter inch tape, mono. When we reached what we thought was the acme, the ready moment, everybody went back to their cubby holes. The amplifiers were isolated. We had the musician with their phones on and we played this quarter inch tape back to them. So they were hearing what they just did and we had them play along with it. So in other words, they played with the pocket that they had just produced outside, the righteous pocket. Then after they played it a couple of times, we cut the sound off, and Barry counted off, bang. We made four songs that day. The rest of the week was a piece of cake, all the same way. And as soon as we got a few tracks organized, Bob laid his vocals down. And I learned one thing about Bob Dylan that most people seem to misperceive because they don't hear the particular things I'm talking about. A beautiful voice, not that's just scratchy, scrambling, what do you got three, you know, down the road a piece with your guitar on your back and 11 and a half wrong bars. Great voice, and you can hear it on some of the ballads. And so we finished Bob's vocals, the rhythm, and the background group, because he had his own group of singers, two girls and a guy. And that was the, the next week we took care of additional sweetening which wasn't that much. Maybe a little percussion, extra guitar. And uh, that was it. That's how we got it done. And incidentally, when Bob said, you know, about producing, I had to figure out, well, when and where and how we're going to do this. So I th I'm thinking Muscle Shoals. And now I had already worked with Dire Straits, where I got to know Mark Knopfler. Don't miss part three of my interview with Jerry Wexler. Subscribe to my YouTube channel on Radio Richard.